Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, February 14th, 2014. That's right, Valentine's Day. question is, how much love will you get from me today? <laughs> I will be merciful, I, I promise. After that Wendy Treats sermon... <laughs> I can't do that again. I not heard. <laughs> We're gonna flip the tables over, do something good, at least at the end of the program. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down, slow down, and open up our Bibles and then compare what is being said to God's Word in context. And when we do that, uh, unfortunately, and I do say it that way, um, what we find is that so much of what's being said about God is not what the Bible actually teaches. It's something completely different. So, it's all about the sermon, and you know some of these errors are, are you know, they are really, really damaging. They, they, these are not neutral things. This, uh, false doctrine is some, not something that Christians are instructed to, you know, basically take a laissez-faire attitude about and say, eh, no big deal. You know, who cares if it's sound doctrine? As long as people are experiencing life transformation, that's all that matters. We can teach whatever we want as long as there's life transformation in the name of Jesus. Yeah, no. <laughs> It does matter. Now, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I have been um, given a special request from several listeners, and the special request is this. It's Valentine's Day, and uh, since here at uh, Fighting for the Faith on Fridays, we normally have the habit of ending with good sermons. Somebody has requested uh, that we end with a sermon today about how much Jesus and God loves us. That is a great idea, and so that's what we'll, we will be doing. So let, we'll start with hour number two. Let me, we won't actually begin there, but let me tell you what we're going to do in hour number two. We're going to do a William Swirla twin spin, and uh, I thought what we would do to end the week off is we'll, we're going to first listen to a sermon from William Swirla uh, from Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Hacienda Heights, California, and we're going to be listening to a sermon of his 
on the actual Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 22 through 33, the story of Jesus walking on the water and then Peter walking on the water. So you can hear what it that text sounds like preached with a true Christocentric focus for us, all right, rather than, you know, you know, the standard nonsense about how Jesus is telling you to get out of the boat and all that kind of stuff. No, Jesus is not telling you to get out of the boat. That's ridiculous. And so we're going to actually listen to a fantastic sermon by Pastor William Swirla on that text, and the name of it is Walking on the Water. And then to end the week off, we're going to be listening to a, another William Swirla sermon uh, entitled The Faith of Abraham, and it's the gospel text is uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, uh, where we get that great passage, uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's how we're going to end the program. So I'm letting you know about the end here at the beginning so that you have something to look forward to. Now, before we get there, it it might seem like a little bit of a long road to get to hour number two. So let's talk about what we're going to do in the meantime. What we're, we got? I got three things on deck that I want to talk about. Number one, we are we are going to uh, spend a little bit of time listening to an interview um, with uh, uh, Patricia King interviewing Joshua Mills on a little devotional book that he's uh, recently written. And the name of the video is uh, Creating the Cloud of Glory. Creating the Cloud of Glory. I am quite convinced that uh, what we're about to hear from uh, Patricia King and Joshua Mills is just patent nonsense. So... That's uh, well, that's how we're going to lead off our number one, and then uh, we'll probably take a break after that. And when we come back, we have two things we're going to do. We're going to do uh, we're going to take another look at Crash the Chatterbox, and uh, what we're going to do is we're going to be um, listening to an interview that uh, that Stephen Furtick recently did with the Sandy Krakowski. Um, this is, I don't know if you've seen this, uh, lady, you know, she's kind of uh, famous in the business, uh, press world and stuff like that. And, um, she's got like, um, really, really, really super purple hair. And, uh, and so she was interviewing Stephen Furtick regarding crash the chatterbox. And I want to listen in particular to uh, the interview because in the interview, Stephen Furtick lays out, uh, some more of the ideas that are in the book and uh, something in particular should uh, uh, pique your interest, arouse your attention, should uh, make you throw a f- red flag and say, whoa, 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 that's not good. And yet, believe me when I tell you, it's not good. Now, remember, here at Fighting for the Faith, uh, Stephen Furtick is um, known as the man who has perfected the art of what we refer to here as narcissus. And if you're not sure what that is, it's two words stuck together. Um, it, the, the, the first word is narcissism, and the other word is eisegesis, which means to read something into a biblical text that isn't there. So eisegesis is not a valid way of doing biblical hermeneutics. In fact, it's the exact opposite of valid hermeneutics. And so narcissistic eisegesis or narcissus 
is reading yourself into the biblical text. And, uh, and unfortunately, Stephen Furtick has not found a biblical text that he has not yet found a way to read himself into it. And, uh, and especially in including ones that are clearly about Jesus. And uh, this, what we're going to also hear in this interview today, is a very, very insipid form of narcissism that um, Stephen Furtick engages in, in the book Crash the Chatterbox, which uh, you need to hear, because if I just told you this is what he was going to, that he's, what he's doing in the book, you'd say, no, come on, he, no, really, no one who calls himself a Christian would do that. Well, yeah, you got to hear it. And uh, and then to end off hour number one, I'm going to be reading a recent uh, blog post put up by a gentleman by the name of Randy White of Randy White Ministries, uh, Word for the World. And the name of the uh, blog post is Why I'm Leaving the Church Growth Movement. Why I'm Leaving the Church Growth Movement. And uh, Dr. Randy White's thoughts here are worth passing along. So that's how we're going to spend today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I recommend that you make yourself comfortable. And, uh, of course, fuzzy bunny slippers, if you can get them. You know, they're not as easy to get nowadays. If you can get them. Uh, you know, they do enhance your listener experience. So with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. And since we're starting off with a Patricia King gang update with Patricia King, well, oh, well, you got to do this. So have you ever wondered how to create a cloud of glory? <laughs> what does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> But I'm about to find out, and I'm sure I won't like it. But uh, here is uh, Patricia King from her Everlasting Love uh, television program and interviewing Joshua Mills uh, regarding a recent book that he's created and them discussing one of the concepts in it about creating the cloud of glory. Uh Uh-huh. Here we go. The title of today's program is called Creating the Cloud of Glory. And so in this program, we're going to... Now, before they even get started, you know, I see, I, I just let them talk for a second that I got to jump right in. Before they even get started, can any of you think off the top of your head where that is all-important biblical passage that teaches the, um, the concept uh, and the doctrine of uh, the cloud of glory creation by human beings or things like that you know glory crowd cloud glory i yeah you know what i'm saying creating glory clouds can you think of that passage off the top of your head i can't even think of a single passage that even mentions the concept so i'm just already like Oh, this is just going to be a train wreck. All right, here we go. Just, um, you know, explore this. And Joshua, you you wrote, well, I mean, you've written many books, but this one is called 31 Days to a Breakthrough Prayer Life. And as I was looking through it, I was... 31 Days to a Breakthrough Prayer Life. Oh, yeah. That, see, that's... See, I hate to say this, but, you know, immediately when somebody is going to, you know, basically market tips and strategies and how-tos on how to achieve, you know, breakthroughs and this and that and you know, the other thing, you, you know they're, they're selling snake oil, something they've invented. Noticing this chapter that just grabbed me, and it's <laughs> called Creating the Cloud of Glory. So we're going to do a yeah. whole program on this subject because it is... Yeah. Yeah, because it's in Joshua Mills's book. Because everybody knows that Joshua Mills is 
just a world-renowned biblical scholar and exegete. It, it, it's, it's so amazing. But what is the cloud of glory, first of all? Well, you know, the Bible talks about it within, um, I think it's Second Chronicles, talks about the dedication of Solomon's temple. And it says that when the ministers, the musicians, the vocalists, all of them got together and they began to lift up that sound, that one voice saying, Lord, you are good. Your mercy endures endures forever. forever. Your love endures forever. It says that the weight of the glory of God literally came down upon them just like a cloud and that the smoke of God's presence filled the place uh, where they were ministering so that the priests could not perform their natural earthly ministry. They couldn't do what they normally did. And they were, they were literally covered by the cloud and consumed by that cloud. And that's what the cloud of glory is. It is a, a copious, weighty, (laughs) full realm of the blessing of God. Amen. And when the manifestation of that cloud comes, like it will come oftentimes in our our meetings and your meetings, when the cloud comes in, miracles begin to spontaneously happen. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a second here. So, um, so... The uh, the really kind of like major one time event here at the dedication of Solomon's temple, the the present, the, you know, the visible presence of the Lord showed up in a way that was reminiscent of what had happened to the children of Israel while they were in their wilderness wanderings after they were rescued from slavery in Egypt. So um, so that's what happens to you, Patricia King and Joshua Mills, while you guys are, you know, meeting in prayer and studying your Bible, you know. The physical uh, glory of God shows up. Yeah. <clears throat> How's the old phrase go? Color me skeptical. Hmm. Makes me want to look at what's going on in that biblical text, though. Let, let's see if uh, we can find it real quick. Yep. He, here it is. It's in Second uh, Chronicles chapter 7. I think that's what he's referring to. But I want to back up a little bit. And uh, let's take a look at what was going on here. If you look at, uh, you know, like Second Chronicles Starting at chapter 5, you got the completion of the work in the temple, and they're bringing in all of the different implements and, uh, you know, the furnishings of the temple. Um, so let's see here. I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead. Second Chronicles chapter 5, verse 1. Thus all the work that Solomon did for the house of the Lord was finished, and Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated and stored the silver, the gold, and all the vessels in the treasuries of the house of God. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers, houses of the people of Israel in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion, and all the men of Israel assembled before the king at the feast that is in the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came and the Levites took up the Ark and they brought up the Ark, the tent of meeting and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The Levitical priests brought them up and King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him uh, were before the Ark sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. And then the priest brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the Ark so that the cherubim made a covering above the Ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside, and they are there to this day." There was nothing in the ark except for the two tablets that Moses put there at Horeb 
where the Lord had made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, for all the priests who were present had consecrated themselves without regard to their divisions. And all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Haman, and Jeduthun, and their sons and the kinsmen arrayed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres, stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and the singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with the trumpets and the cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. They're, they're, you know, they're singing one of the psalms here that David wrote. And the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Now, let's make a, let's get something, you know, straight up here. This is not just, you know, a run-of-the-mill, everyday, ordinary event. This is the dedication of the Temple of Solomon it is a national event. All of Israel is there. I mean, uh, they, they didn't even have the divisions of the priests. You know, every one of the priests had consecrated himself so that he could participate in this. This, I mean, this would, if, if, if this were happening today, literally, you would have CNN, you would have Fox News, you would have all of the local television stations and affiliates. I mean, there were, there, this would make that top, this make the, the front page of all the newspapers, the cover of Time magazine. I mean, this is a huge deal. This is a big event, all right? And so, yeah, here it says the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. So let's keep reading a little bit more. So then Solomon said, The Lord said that he would dwell in thick darkness, but I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. And then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I chose no city out of all of the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. And I chose no man as prince over my people, Israel, but I have chosen Jerusalem that my name may be there. And I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. Now this is, I mean, this is just crackling with messianic significance here. I mean, because where is Christ to be crucified? Jerusalem. And who is he? He's the son of David. I mean, oh, and he's ultimately the one who the temple points to. Jesus is the real temple. And he is the real sacrifice. All of these are type and shadow. And David is the forerunner and father of, of, of Jesus. And Jesus is going to sit on the throne of David forever. I mean, this is yeah, just, I mean, we talk about messianic types and shadow overload here. I mean, this is, it'd be difficult to suck all the marrow out of this passage. But we continue. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. But the, but the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, it is not you who shall build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made, for I have risen in the place of David, my father, and sit on the throne of Israel. As the Lord promised, I have built the house for the name of the Lord 
the God of Israel. And there I have set the ark, which which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with the people of Israel. And then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all of the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. And Solomon had made a, a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, three cubits high, and had set it on the court. And he stood on it, and then he knelt on his knees in the presence of all of the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven and said, O Yahweh, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on the earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all of their heart, who have kept your servant uh, David, my father, what you declared to him, you have kept uh, what what you your servant David, my father, you had declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand you have fulfilled. It is this day. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for yourself, David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk in my law that you have walked before me. And who fulfills this, by the way? It's Jesus. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Great question. The answer is yes. Okay, and the and the temple is just the foreshadow, because if you read the back of the book in the book of Revelation, God makes His dwelling with man in the end in the New Jerusalem. But we continue. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? Yet you have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. Oh Yahweh, my God, listen to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house, the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place, and listen to the pleas of your servant and your people Israel when they pray toward this place, and listen from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Ah, a prayer of forgiveness from for mercy. <clears throat> If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear from heaven and act and judge your servants, repaying the guilty and bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. If your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you and they turn again and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to them and to their fathers. And when heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray towards this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemies besiege them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all of your people Israel, each knowing his own affliction, and his own sorrow and stretching out his hand toward this house, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and render to each whose heart you know according to all of his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of children of mankind, that they may fear you and walk in your ways all the days that they live in the land that you grant 
and gave to your fathers. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this house, hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Yeah, this just, I mean, it goes on and on, and it's just a fantastic prayer. And here's how it ends in chapter 7. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all of the people of Israel saw the fire come down and all of the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to Yahweh, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now, <clears throat> quite the event right? It's kind of a once-in-a-history kind of event. This is a one-time deal. This is not something normative. This was at the dedication of the temple. And you notice who was the center of Solomon's prayer? The Lord was. And what was on display? His mercy, his forgiveness, that his ear is attentive to the needs of of people, his people, and that his name would be known throughout all of the earth, right? That he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. And the messianic themes in here are just over the top. I mean, this is a fantastic text of scripture. And yet Joshua Mills and Patricia King, in reading this text, somehow focus in and key in on, oh, the glory thing. And, oh, and they just kind of, Oh, you know, you know, this is what happens to us, you know, when we're praying. Really. Uh, this is what happens to you when, you know, when you're praying. I don't think so. I, I doubt it. Because if this was happening to you while you were praying, you wouldn't even be able to be in the room that you were in. And why on earth would God do what he did in his temple and make his presence known in his temple the way he did it there with fire and glory? Why would he do that in your Spare bedroom or something. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Let me back this up just a little bit. And consumed by that cloud. And that's what the cloud of glory is. It is a a copious, weighty, (laughs) full (laughs) realm of the blessing of God. Amen. And when the manifestation of that cloud comes, like it will come oftentimes in our our meetings and your meetings, when the cloud comes. Yeah, right. It comes, you know, in their conference room when they're having a meeting, you know, their green room getting ready to go, you know, record their video program. Then miracles began to spontaneously happen. And people's lives are changed and people experience deliverance. And those who don't know God, those who don't know Christ, personally sometimes they'll just begin to cry or weep under the presence or or run to the altars because something is happening within that cloud of glory right and huge transformations take place in people's lives and sometimes healings or provisional miracles or you know heart heart changes everything can happen when that glory cloud comes into a meeting or into a room in fact i was just in my kitchen the other night and yeah how would you be able to stay in your kitchen if the glory showed up because i mean the priests there in um in chronicles weren't even able to 
be inside of the temple when the glory showed up. They, they, they were kind of kicked out by it. And I hadn't seen it in our home for a long time. And all of a sudden it moved in. I thought, oh. Right. And it moved into your kitchen. Uh-huh. Right. You just can feel his, his love presence so strong. It's amazing. When he's there. I was ministering several years ago up in the Canadian Arctic. And it was a spontaneous meeting. It hadn't been. <laughs> oh, it was Canadian Arctic, huh? It didn't advertise um, at all. But I was ministering in the uh the pastor's home in his basement area. And as we were praising and worshiping the Lord. So the same glory that showed up at the temple showed up in a guy's basement in the Canadian Arctic. (laughs) What are you people smoking? This cloud began to form as a tiny little cloud up around the, (laughs) around the light fixture in the, the family room and it would just grow a little bit bigger and bigger and bigger maybe he had his humidifier turned up too high and as that cloud came the revelation of god began to drop the wisdom of god the spirit of god began to minister and there was a couple that was sitting there that i think they had lived together for 11 or 12 years they weren't married but the spirit of god came on them and began to deal with them about situations that people had been telling them for years you need to get married you need to make it right you need to do this you need to do that and one moment in the glory of god (laughs) so uh, let me see if i got a puffy little cloud showed up in someone's basement and it caused people to spontaneously all on their own feel like we've been living in sin we have to get married Uh uh-huh does more for you than a Amen. lifetime of self-effort without the presence of God. Wow. And they, they literally got directed to have a wedding right away. So the very next day at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, they got married. And would you believe that cloud of glory showed up again in that basement? Wow. And it was wonderful. And the woman, she didn't have preparation time to go purchase a nice wedding dress because she was going to spontaneously get married right. because the Lord had directed her. But in the wedding, that cloud began to form and supernatural gold began to come out of the cloud wow. and covered her completely. She- yeah, right. She began to cry and she said, this is the most beautiful wedding dress. I could not have asked for a more beautiful oh, wedding dress. Oh, it's like, you know, the angels and you know, well, the pixies and fairies gave her pixie dust and, you know, just to make the moment complete. Are you sure you didn't steal this from like a Disney movie or something? And this. Joshua, let's talk about what the cloud actually looks like because sometimes you can actually see it like a like a white mist. I've seen colored right. ones too. Like yes. You see it in your spiritual vision but it's 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 in the natural too you can actually see it i've seen it move into meetings and sometimes it's actually felt rather than exactly there'll be times when it comes in like you said just like a fog or a mist kind of in the room there was one time i was ministering down in south florida close to miami and it actually just popped open instantly like burst open over the people and it was white fluffy and really really thick and dense that if you were in it you couldn't see through it you wouldn't be able to see anybody that's how thick that cloud was but it comes in all different manifestations but more commonly in our meetings we sense yes or we can feel the kabod of god the glory of god it's like a cloud settles exactly then you move and live inside of it you know the atmosphere is oh man this is just complete subjective experience nonsense and notice your focus is not is no longer on Christ and his word and something sure and certain that you can actually see in his word. You know, they, they've just referenced his word and now now they're out you're out there looking for 
Well, 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 haven't I had like, you know, one of these glory clouds come and settle on me and, you know, well, quick, go down to your basement. It's probably there right now. You better move fast. Otherwise, you're going to miss it. Changed. Yeah. And suddenly even your mind, your emotional state has changed exactly. where you're not thinking about your problems. You're not thinking about the, the stuff you've been going through, but now your eyes are focused on Jesus Christ, yeah. the answer for all of your needs. And he- yeah, no, their eyes are not focused on Jesus Christ at all. This is not a real manifestation of Christ, the Holy Spirit, God's presence or glory or anything of the sort. This is utter nonsense. He becomes your soul vision within that cloud of glory. Amen. I love it. Yeah. Do you remember, this was years ago, and we were interviewing you at, at, up in Canada in a studio up there right. in a broadcast place. And it was the first time, I think, that we had actually had you as a guest on our program. It was. And the crew at that station <laughs> had never seen the glory manifest. Right. But we were just talking on the set. And all of a sudden, you could feel the kabod or the presence, the I cloud fall. And in it, though, yes. came visible glory particles like this gold glitter. And it started falling all I over the floor. It was I on your it was on face. The table. On your, I remember it on my nose. On Do you your remember nose, that? It and like, it was on, on yeah. your shoulder. And, yeah. um, and... The crew went ballistic. Why would God's glory, you know, follow and settle on somebody like Joshua Mills, who is a chronic and habitual twister of God's word and spinner of yarns? Yeah, um, that's what this is. This is nothing but a yarn. This is a tall tale. This is, um, and, you know, of course, who's the real focus here? Oh, Joshua Mills. I mean, because, you know, a lot of people listening to this will be sitting there going, well, these things never happened to me Joshua Mills, how did he figure out the secret tonight? Well, he's selling a book, and if you buy his book, he'll tell you the secret. Because remember, the name of the of this video segment is "Creating the Glo- uh, the Cloud of Glory." See, if you buy Joshua Mills's book, then you too can learn how to create the glory cloud in your basement, so that you can, you know, sit there and bake in its presence, <laughs> which is has nothing, absolutely nothing, to do whatsoever with actual sound biblical doctrine and theology and what God really wants you to be focusing on. This is utter and complete nonsense. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back with another Stephen Furtick update on Crash Chatterbox and... Um, And then also that story about why this uh, Dr. Randy White is leaving the church growth movement. Worth listening to. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select.
again, ladies and gentlemen, to this week's edition of What the Buzz, where we show you the latest, the greatest, the most fantastic and controversial inventions in the Christian world of tomorrow, today. In studio with me right now is the infamous Dr. Ergen Canner with his latest product called Ergen Canner's Testimony Enhancement Spray. Dr. Canner, please tell us how you invented this marvelous product. It all started when I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. My conversion to Christianity was a relatively mundane one. Being a run-of-the-mill Christian is not what we call exciting. I bet. When I would try to tell my pagan friends why they too should be Christians, all they did was laugh at me and tell me how pathetic my Christian testimony was. I knew then that if my story of how I chose Jesus was more compelling, then I would be able to reach more people. It wasn't until years later that I created the spray that you see before you now. Well, what does it do? It does exactly what I said it does. For example, after using this spray, I was able to completely change my Christian testimony. I went from being a boring, middle-aged man to an individual who grew up under the oppression of Islam. I was part of the Islamic Youth Jihad, and I had been personally trained by terrorists of Al-Qaeda. When I moved to America in my 15th year, I was plagued by ridicule and bullying in my high school. People would call me Sand Monkey and push me around like a ragdoll. I wished to crush the infidels when they stood. Luckily for me, I found Jesus and accepted him into my heart before I committed acts of terrorism. Instead of a bomb on my back, I now had the cross of Jesus. That's an amazing story! Has your spray worked with other people? Yes, yes it has. Take a listen to some unenhanced testimonies from these non-actors about my product. Before I used Ergen Canner's Testimony Enhancement Spray, I was a boring accountant working for a small firm in the farthest reaches of upstate New York. Me, being a Christian, was about as compelling as watching paint dry. Then I became a pirate from the 17th century who personally helped sack the Spanish main. I pillaged and plundered the heart and soul out of the Caribbean for many a year. Then one day... I miraculously accepted Jesus into my heart, and I was saved. I put up me cutlass forever and sailed to America with the hope of telling more people that Jesus died so that they might live in luxury. I was a simple stay-at-home dad who didn't have any real ambitions in life other than taking care of my children. I would always go to my local megachurch and experience the presence of God. My friends who did fantasy football with me never really found my Christian walk to be that compelling. So now, I'm an ex-assassin who carries out hundreds of missions for the government around the world. There isn't anybody on Earth that I couldn't kill with a pair of chopsticks and a stick of bubblegum. During one of my last missions, I came across the family who had told me the good news, that I had the power to forgive myself of all the debts I had wrought. In that moment, I felt a change come over me as I led Jesus into my heart, and I gave up my life of murder forever. I used to be normal and happy. Then one day my church counselor, Mr. Gary Sunshine, told me to go on an Emmaus walk to find Jesus. I guess I didn't trust in God hard enough because I was lost in the wilderness for over three months. 
Jesus never showed up, and Mr. Snuggles didn't make it. I had almost died from starvation, then a helicopter came, and... What are you doing here? That's not a testimony. You do not even use spray. Get out! Um, you promised me five dollars for the testimony. I'm not paying you for that garbage. Get out! Be sure to pick up your very own bottle of Ergen Tanner's Testimony Enhancement Spray from Los Lobos Ministry Products. Order now! Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor or mega church leader is into spinning yarns and tales about creating glory clouds. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. That's right. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And it is a great way to support us. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send it to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 and let me thank you thank you for your support we cannot and i do that i mean that we cannot do what we are doing here without it okay moving along that's right time for another crash the chatterbox Stephen furtick update pulpit like you are a man of God your hair strategically cut to the new style the beaver was fake and hot you had one eye on the camera as you watched the crowd applaud all of the pastors dreamed you'd be 
their mentor. You'd be their mentor, and you're so vain. They probably think the Bible's about you. You're so vain. I bet you think the Bible's about you, don't you? Don't you? Heard the real gospel and you're so vain. You'll probably think the Bible's about you. You're so vain. I bet you think the Bible's about you. Don't you? Don't you? All right. Now, yesterday we uh, dipped our toes into the waters of uh, Crash the Chatterbox. Just kind of kind of give you the premise behind the book itself. And today we're going to be listening to an interview that Stephen Furtick granted. That's probably, yeah, he he grants interviews. You know, you have to actually apply to have an audience with him. Uh, Let me kill the music here. And uh, the interview itself is with a gal who's more famous kind of in the uh, Forbes magazine, Entrepreneur uh, magazine, CNBC crowd. Um, Her name is uh, Sandy Krakowski. And uh, she's the gal with the uh, the purple hair in you know for her bangs and you know it, she she's you know she's got some distinctive hair going on here and apparently um, she has uh, made Ch- Crash the Chatterbox one of Sandy's best book suggestions and um, so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be listening to part of this interview but in spe- specifically what we're going to be listening to is um, them dialoguing back and forth about the solutions to the you know how do you get those uh, pesky voices in your head to be quiet. And so uh, Stephen Furtick has kind of chopped this up into like, I think, four different ways and, you know, uh, you know, confessions that you can make uh, in order to silence and kind of overpower and evict the negative thoughts in your brain. And uh, one of them in particular is, well, how should I put it? Blasphemous? Yes. Um, because, of course, Stephen Furtick, again, he can't help himself. There is a biblical passage that isn't about him. And, uh, and of course, not even the I am passages of Scripture are off limits. Yeah, if you don't know what I'm talking about... I think back to Exodus, and uh, you know, I think it's Exodus chapter three, where uh, the Lord appears to Moses from a burning bush, and and in the middle of that conversation, Moses asks the question of the Lord, "Who shall I say sent me?" You know, what's the name you want me to give? And God's name for Himself is I am. Mm-hmm. Now, Jesus himself takes up that name and uses it for himself. In fact, you're going to be hearing that in uh, the first of Pastor Swirla's sermons today. Um, and, uh, you know, so, but it's very prominent in the Gospel of John. Jesus says, you know, ego eimi, which, you know, in, in Greek is I, I am. You know, he's taking up the divine name for himself. Uh, but Stephen Furtick has found a, a new use for um, these, uh, for the concept of I am. And uh, has a new definition, a brand new spanking new definition for what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. 
Mm -hmm. And believe me when I tell you, uh, in his new definition, taking the Lord's name in vain is um, saying bad things about yourself. Yeah. Here's um, part of his interview with Sandy Krakowski. Here we go. And, you know, in the book, you talk a lot about that on the choice and that this is not a playground. This is a battleground and each consecutive choice and different choices that we don't even realize we are making that's determining our future. I know one of the things that you said that really struck me and it's highlighted and underlined and it's in my journal and I actually have it right up here on top of my 27-inch monitor <laughs> is inner conflict. You, you have it here towards the, the end of the book, but inner conflict is often a confirmation of your calling because the enemy only fights those who pose a threat. Yes. Oh, man. What biblical passage says that? Um, <clears throat> okay, so yesterday we kind of laid the ground that this is all about you finding a way to overpower those negative thoughts in your mind so that you can ultimately get to your dream destiny and achieve your destiny kind of thing. And so uh, in the book, Stephen Furtick literally <laughs> – teaches that if you're having these inner conflict and voices and stuff like that, it's, well, the reason why is because you're a threat to the devil. That is confirmation of your destiny and calling. Man, talk about self-importance. And, you know, I see it not only with some of the coaching clients we have. I have met people who have multi-billion dollar companies, and it's interesting how they have to continue, like you said, it's hard to hear God. One of the things you said was in the cave, and you have to get yourself in a right place so that God's voice goes up. Now, a lot of people, I'm sure the very first thing they're writing down is, okay, it's hard to hear God calling in the cave. Turn the reception up. How do I do that? Well, y'all need to get this book, seriously, because you do give practical steps on how to turn up God's voice, but also... Really? So Stephen Furtick has discovered practical steps on how to turn God's voice up in your head? Wow. How did the church survive without Stephen Furtick? I mean, here, I mean, Christians have gone for 2,000 years without having these skills and these abilities, and Furtick has discovered them all himself. So to take, I would say, you know, it's almost like martial, martial arts. If we are constantly blocking, we are wearing ourselves down. And you teach how to strike, how to yeah. give the almighty strike. Yeah, yeah. Even if you feel like you're striking, I mean, like, you know, I look so tough, right? <laughs> but, I wouldn't mess with you, but that's just me. <laughs> no, I but, think what you're saying is so important. You know, one way that I've said it is how to turn that attack into your advantage. That's right. And in that way, it's it's a sort of jujitsu, isn't it? Because it's taking the thought and usually our thoughts keep us captive, mm. you know, keep mm -hmm. us imprisoned, keep us mm -hmm. limited and keep us deceived. Mm -hmm. But the scripture teaches that we can actually take our thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. That's right. So when you learn how to take the thoughts that are discouraging and I, I basically break it down into four areas in the book, I tried to pinpoint, well, what are the four areas that we struggle with this? How does it present itself practically? And so we broke it down into insecurity, mm -hmm. fear, mm -hmm. shame, yes. or condemnation is another yes. word, and discouragement. Mm. And then we present an active strategy for not making this stuff go away or hoping that one day you'd be a more positive person. But how to then take those attacks 
and apply God's word, apply God's promises, apply the truth to those areas of attack. And actually learning how to recognize and categorize that thought is the first step toward defending yourself against it. But it's not enough just to know that it comes. We have to learn how to how to wage a counterattack. And that's where these four confessions come in. So I'm teaching throughout the book how to counteract each of these areas of attack with a confession. The first one is God says I am. Mm-hmm. That- now listen carefully to this. So to combat the uh, the problem of insecurity... Uh, The confession is God says, I am. Now listen to the details and you'll see the problem. It'll make insecurity go away. And I have a lot I can share about that with you sometimes, Sandy. You'll love it. Some of the new stuff I'm seeing about I am. You know, that's that's how God presented himself to Moses. Yeah, that's right. That's his name. And Jesus uses that for himself. Now here comes the jujitsu move that uh, makes it so that this doesn't apply to God or to Jesus anymore. Mm-hmm. When Moses said, who are you or who should I tell the people that you are? And God simply said, I am. Well, you know, later in the book of Exodus, the same book where God showed himself to Moses, uh, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. And one of the things he tells Moses is, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. Right. Well, I start thinking about that. Usually we think it's just like saying, oh, my God, or yeah, you know, something yeah, or, like that. Using like, so what does it mean to take the Lord's name in vain? That's one of the, the commandments in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. What do you think Stephen Furtick thinks that means? Okay, let's <clears throat> hang on a second here. I'm going to grab my uh, my small catechism here. Um, from Luther's small catechism, I think it's helpful to you know to give you kind of a referent point, if you would here, of you know how have other people understood this commandment? Um, second commandment: You shall not misuse or take the name of the Lord your God in vain. What does this mean? Here's what uh, Luther wrote. He says we should fear and love God so that we do not curse or swear or use satanic arts or lie or deceive by God's name. But call upon it in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. In other words, taking God's name in vain is using his name to curse, swear, use satanic arts, deceive people, and things like that. Uh, What does it mean to take God's name in vain? Well, God's name in vain, that sin occurs uh, primarily nowadays by pastors preaching from pulpits when they deceive people in the name of God. That's what it means to take God's name in vain. Now, what does Furtick think? God's what it means to take God's name in vain. Now remember, he's already kind of giving you the setup here. It has something to do with God saying that his name is I am. Watch this. God's like a name is a cuss or whatever, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I realize that maybe the deeper meaning there is that when when I say I am and attach something to that that doesn't represent who God made me to be, I'm taking his name in vain. When I say I'm so stupid, when I say I, you know, I'm I'm such a failure. When I say I am, come on, and then attach good. stuff to that that isn't who God made me to be. I'm taking His name in vain. So I'll I'll talk more about that. No, that about is that so good. Yeah. No, it's not. It's absolutely blasphemous. So now, taking God's name in vain is when you say something negative about yourself. That is absolutely 180 degrees backwards. And that is not what it means to take God's name in vain. But of course, Stephen Furtick, he, there's not a single passage 
in Scripture that he can't find a way to make it about himself. And so now Moses in the burning bush and God saying, I am, he's found a way to find a deeper meaning here because God's name is I am. So taking God's name in vain is when I say negative things about myself, like I'm such a failure or I, you know, that's taking God's name in vain. No, it is not. That is narcissistic nonsense and absolutely blasphemous what he has done there. Yeah, that's what he teaches in Crash the Chatterbox. Okay, one last segment before we go to our break and then get into our sermon reviews in hour number two. Uh, It requires me to do this, though. From the website of randywhiteministries.org, Dr. Randy White has a blog post entitled, Why I'm Leaving the Church Growth Movement. Dr. Randy White writes, yeah, say that 10 times fast, church growth is all the rage. For pastors, the focus is on leadership. For the layman, it's on reaching the people. In the church world, church growth is the standard of success. If a church reaches people and the pastor is a visionary leader, uh, then the church will be considered a success. If a church makes it into somebody's bogus fastest growing church list then the church frenzy continues with the sheep flocking to check out what innovation has been initiated to reach the masses for christ personally i think the emperor has no clothes for at least four reasons i reject the church growth and church health principles taught at almost every pastor's conference and expressed in almost every church our church will be different because i reject these principles although different Uh, uh, will likely mean odd behind the times and shrinking in size, I go there anyway. So, number one, I refuse to believe that a Christian community will save anyone. I am so glad that Dr. Randy White started with this because the whole idea behind the church growth movement is a communitarian or fascistic worldview that was uh, instilled in the church growth movement by Peter Drucker. Yeah, again, if you don't know what I'm talking about, find my lecture at the Fighting for the Faith website. It's called Resistance is Feudal, You'll Be Assimilated by the Community. But here's what Dr. Randy uh, White wrote. He says, community is the big word today, along with missional. And if you claim to be a missional community, you are really on the cutting edge. Churches work hard to design community. They do it through small groups centered around felt needs and gathered in living rooms across the country. These community groups gather for the bigger community in a weekly celebration of magnificence. This weekly celebration has been carefully scripted from the ridiculously silly and manipulative countdown screen to the last triumphant note of victory at which the community members are sent out to create a Christian society by building community within their neighborhoods. These community groups gather for, quote, unquote, Bible study, which is almost always a double misnomer. The only scripture used will be out-of-context references that came from the latest book by the latest Hollywood looks celebrity pastor who gathered his thoughts from the Internet and allowed a nameless editor to work them into something profitable. The group will neither study the passages nor the book itself. They will simply read a chapter before they come and then spend 45 minutes talking about the parts they liked, share how the chapter made them feel about themselves as well as any insights gained, and then go away and tell their friends about their marvelous Bible study. It reminds me of when my dad told me we were having tube steak for dinner. I was somewhat disappointed when I found out that he just used that lofty-sounding name to refer to hot dogs. Today, much of the Bible study in the missional communities is the equivalent of tube steak. 
Following quote-unquote Bible study, the groups engage in fellowship time, then go on their way as biblically empty as when they arrived. Soon they will gather for a missional project in which they repair a home, painting the door red so that all the town will know that this is, the, is, this is one of the homes repaired by the missional community and will rise up and call the missional community wonderful. If not a home repair project, it may be picking up trash for the city or painting a dilapidated school or providing shoes for shoeless children. The sermon will often be aimed toward raising up an army of Christians who adopt the orphan, visit the imprisoned, and blog for social justice. Even if I believe that these mission projects were as successful as the church websites claim— I don't think it has any lasting impact. As I see it, the Christian is not so much to engage his society, but to come out from it. The church today is filled with those who are both in the world and of the world and who are organized to change the world into a kinder and gentler place to be. The success rate of the megachurch missional church movement has been an utter failure. Society is more liberal and godless than ever before, with no end to its decline in sight. The mega-missional church will gather in their multi, uh, multi-site campus celebrations this weekend and slobber over themselves for their victories, even while these same churches have been totally impotent to bring about social change. Building missional community does nothing more than produce a feel-good complacency to the community members. Although they live assured they are going to be people of impact as part of a community, they fail to really make any difference. They fool themselves into thinking the emperor's clothes are superb. Have you noticed that I have not mentioned anything about the proclamation of the word and the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's because there is not much to mention from the church today. The church today does good works, has good music in the ears of many, has a really good sound system, and a pastor who could lead circles around Moses. What it doesn't have is the backbone to proclaim that our world must reject humanism, social justice, poverty eradication efforts, and other whitewashed measures of expanding the kingdom of God, and must find its only hope in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ. Next point, I reject all manipulation and aim towards persuasion. The second reason I'm leaving the missional community church growth movement is because I reject manipulation of all kinds. In fact, more than ever before, it disgusts me. The modern church is so built on manipulation that I'm convinced it could not continue without it. I recently attended a relatively small Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church as a guest. I was refreshed to see that almost every participant had their Bible, and it was open during the sermon. This told me that the pastor regularly delivers enough verse-by-verse content that looking up one verse on an iPad just wouldn't suffice. Bibles for this rare congregation were a necessity. It was also impre- I was also impressed by the music. It was bad, and that impressed me. It wasn't polished. There wasn't a carefully selected praise team who passed the Sunday morning test of looks and sound, dressed in color-coordinated clothing, closing their eyes and looking to heaven as if they were in, a, in an ecstatic moment. I've often seen these ecstatic moments turn on and off like a light switch. In fact, The song leader was clearly not a professional, and his tone was often just off a bit, but the people sang with joy, and I was impressed with their prayers. They prayed for real and legitimate needs during a Sunday morning service. 
it would never pass the church growth test because it wasn't seeker-friendly at all, with random people from the congregation praying at will over the needs of the members. As a first-time visitor, I felt out of place during that prayer, and I thought, that was wonderful. After all, if I was looking for a church, I'd want one that really cared about the hurting people that they knew, the flesh-and-blood people who sat in their pews each Sunday. Most churches, including mine, are not like this. In most churches, not mine, I wonder if they would be able to continue the worship if the electricity went out. The service is so dependent on mood lighting, electric instrumentation, sound amplification, and video enhancements that that it would fall flat in a New York minute with no power. In my church, thankfully, if the electricity went out, we would give one another a quick glance and grin and keep on singing or preaching. If the electricity-dependent worship of the modern church uh, lost electricity, we would see quickly how much vast emptiness there is in these churches, and in short order, the churches would be vastly empty. No show, no crowd. Incidentally, I'm not a fan of the uh, black box architecture of the missional community church. This is a total rejection of centuries of theologically driven architecture principles of church design that understood a theology of aesthetics. Rejecting manipulation. I won't do a countdown video before the service. It simply enhances the idea of a show that's about to begin. I refuse to allow the A team to perform. I don't want soft music playing while I pray or preach or give an invitation. I don't want smart lights that set the mood changeable at the push of a button to fit the tone of the selected song. I don't want to manipulate my audience into a certain feeling which will evoke a certain action. Doing so is sadly too easy because our generation, as the Bible predicted, loves the tickling of ears. If you tickle, they will come. What I do want to provide is persuasion. I want to stand before the congregation with a persuasive argument from Scripture. As a lawyer before the jury, I want to present a watertight case that will change the thinking of those who have come to hear a biblical message. I realize that I do this in a day in which feelings trump thinking, and so my kind of persuasive Preaching will often be rejected. Persuasive preaching doesn't have enough stories, illustrations, and you can do it backslapping grunts. Next one. I refuse to let my congregation be deceived by good feelings. Thirdly, I reject the missional community church growth movement because it is deceptive. Participants in these churches feel like they are stalwart conservatives in a Bible-believing, gospel-proclaiming, hell-reducing, kingdom-expanding church. They consistently proclaim, my preacher really preaches the Bible. True, their preacher does hold up a Bible and talk about how true and authoritative it is. He even quotes from the Bible fairly consistently. I know the plans I have for you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I come that you might have life and more abundantly and of course, bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse. What these church members do not know is that they have adopted the leftist agenda, socialism or neocon agenda, reconstructing a Christian society, which is as empty as it has always been. I will lose uh, church growth potential because I won't allow a good-feeling production to trump reality. Do my church members know their Bible? Can they give a defense of the attacks against it? Can they rightly divide the word of truth? Do they have a biblical worldview that understands creation, eschatology, salvation, grace, and so much more? 
Have I developed a congregation that could and would stick with it through a a months-long study of the book of Numbers or Leviticus? If I have not developed this kind of biblical hunger, then I've just allowed them to be deceived by thinking that they had Bible study, experience worship, and come away a better and more Christ-like person. Since I will stand before God someday to be judged for reality, not feelings— I will be satisfied to spend my time and energy developing a biblically literate congregation. Next, I reject the church as a program organization over which I am the CEO. Finally, the CEO model of pastor has to go. I know that almost every missional community church model pastors conference says the same thing, continually reminding pastors that they are not CEOs. Then, having given the obligatory rejection of CEO lifestyle leadership, they tell the pastor that he should be known as the lead pastor, lead uh, short for leadership, a key CEO trait. They instruct him in the best means of vision development and vision casting. They, Peter Drucker, him to spiritual death. They study the Bible not looking for biblical truth, but looking for leadership traits of Moses, one of the worst leaders of all time, Gideon, zero leadership capability, Nehemiah, who was not a priest nor a pastor, but a government official, Jesus, who did nothing but follow his father, or Paul, who said pastors should preach the word. Going further, these pastors' conferences or books talk talk about all the programs and paradigms the church could, should implement to develop its missional community. Of course, as soon as you create any kind of ministry, i.e. program, in the church, it requires some oversight, which requires the pastor to leave his pastoral function and begin acting like the conference book instructed him to act like a leader. Don't call me a lead pastor. Don't call me senior pastor. Been there, done that. Don't call me teaching pastor. Is there any other kind? Just call me pastor. And let me devote my life to prayer and the ministry of the word, ministering to the flock under my care. I happen to believe that if a person attends a church where they cannot call the pastor and talk to him, they don't really have a pastor. The conclusion, I've just rejected everything that has become the favorite methods of the missional community church, which it uses as it bows down to its idol called church growth. I'm sure some have said amen all the way through. If that's you, you've probably struggled to find a place to worship and call your church home. Others have come to the end with a righteous rage, wondering how I could so not get it. Whichever side you are on, I encourage you to run to the Bible and use it as your only source of revelation about the will of God in church, society, and your own personal life. Brilliant article by Dr. Randy White. Again, you can find this at randywhiteministries.org. I think it's dated, hang on a second here, I think it's dated uh, January 2nd, 2014, Why I'm Leaving the Church Growth Movement. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. When we come back, a Pastor Bill Swirla twin spin. Two great sermons to end off the week. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Rawr! 
Seriously, Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. We're back, hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to end off with two good sermons. A little bit of a, a housekeeping note here. I'm going to be out of studio Monday and Tuesday of next week. So we will not have a, a new episode of Fighting for the Faith until Wednesday of next week. So just keep that in mind. There's nothing terrible going on. I need to uh, do a little bit of travel. I sit on the board of directors for higher things, and we have our annual meeting every year. So... The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermons, two of them. Come to us via Holy Trinity Lutheran Church, Hacienda Heights, California, Pastor William Swirla presiding. Now, I thought, like I said, I would throw into the mix here to begin with a good sermon on the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 22 through 33, uh, the account of Jesus walking on the water and what a Christ-centered sermon on this text sounds like. Believe me when I tell you, it will blow you away. It is so good. Okay, so the first one is entitled Walking on the Water, and that's the text that it will be drawn from. The second one is uh, entitled The Faith of Abraham, and it's on the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. And I threw that in there as a special Valentine's request because somebody wanted to hear a sermon about how God loves us. I couldn't think of a better sermon for that. Okay, let me go ahead and kill the music. 
And uh, let me go ahead and read the text that forms the basis for the first sermon that we're going to listen to. This is the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 22 through 33, which reads, Immediately he, that's Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain to pray to, uh, to him by himself to pray. And it almost messed that up. Um, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But the disciples saw him walking on the sea. They were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. This is the text that forms the basis of this sermon entitled, Walking on the Water. Here we go. Well, Jesus finally gets a chance for some solitude and prayer. He's been trying for an entire chapter in Matthew to get some peace and quiet, but the pesky crowds keep following him. Word of cousin John's death in prison has just reached the ears of Jesus, and understandably, he wants to take some time by himself to pray to his father. And so after feeding the 5,000 plus with bread and fish and ordering the disciples off in their boat, Jesus finally gets some alone time up on the mountain. By sunset, he is there all by himself. The crowds are long gone. The disciples are busy row, row, rowing their boat. A notorious wind kicks up, as winds are prone to do in the evening on the Sea of Galilee. White caps and wind chop kick up the sea. The disciples struggle hard against the wind and the waves, and they seem to be getting nowhere at all. The harder they pull the oars, the more they seem to be staying in the same place. Have you ever felt that way about your life? The harder you try, the less you seem to progress. It's that way with all of us. They row, row, row their boats through the night past midnight into the wee hours of the morning, probably taking turns to ward off fatigue. Here, John, you row for a while. I'm beat. These blisters are killing me. And it's now 3 in the morning. That's right, 3 a.m., the fourth watch of the night, the last call before the dawn. And they look out on the water, and they see a figure of a man, and he's walking upon the water. Now, these men in the boat are sane and rational men. At least four of them are fishermen, acquainted with the ways of the sea, and how light can play tricks with your eyes as it reflects off the water. And yet they were terrified. Understandably so. Who wouldn't be? They knew that men cannot walk on water. And so they assumed it was a phantom. That's the Greek word for it. A phantom, an apparition, a ghost, if you will. That's the way we say it, though there's really no such thing. A phantom. And they cry out in fear. Again, who wouldn't? You're there in a boat, all alone, 3 a.m., tired, battling the wind and the waves, and you see a figure walking toward you 
on the water. This doesn't happen every day on the Sea of Galilee. I don't know about you, but I can sense my heart picking up in beats just thinking about what that must have been like. Well, seeing isn't believing, but hearing is. As the Apostle Paul reminds us in the book of Romans, faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ, not by seeing, gawking, or looking at. Jesus speaks to them from across the water. Take heart, buck up. It is I. Do not be afraid. Hmm. It is I. Ego eimi in Greek. The reason I mention this is not to flash my Greek, but to remind you of the full import of what Jesus says, which gets understandably lost in English translation. He's not simply saying, hey, boys, it's me, though that's part of it. But he says, it's me in such a way as to invoke the divine name. I am. Ego eimi. I am. The one who appeared to Moses in the burning bush that did not burn. I am who I am. Yahweh. Ego eimi is how you said I am in Greek. And Matthew, Matthew who speaks to a largely Jewish audience, is rather reluctant to use that Greek phrase in his gospel. He rarely says ego eimi or has Jesus say it unless he really wants to drive home a point. And here he wants to drive home a point lest we miss it. Jesus is saying to his disciples, have courage, take heart, I am the Lord. I am who I am. Don't be afraid. Well, it's about time you showed up, Jesus. What took you so long? We've been pulling oars here for nine hours and getting nowhere. How about lending a hand? Maybe pulling an oar. And while you're at it, could you possibly do something about the wind and these waves? Well, Peter wasn't quite so sure. The others probably weren't so sure either, but Peter tends to speak up first and say what's on his mind. Lord, if it's you, if it's you, then command me to come out to you on the water. That's pretty definitive proof, I'd say, huh? Phantoms may speak, but they have no real power to do much of anything, much less make a man walk on water. So Jesus says, come. One word, even in Greek, come, two syllables in Greek, no, three, one in English, come. But this one word is no ordinary word. It is a word from the word, the word incarnate, the word in the flesh, the word through whom all things were made, the word that laid the foundations of the earth, the word that shut the sea behind its doors, the word that made the clouds and said to the proud waves of the deep, thus far you shall go and no farther. This is the same word that said, be light and light there ever is. And so when Jesus says to Peter, come, that's all it takes to bring Peter out of the boat and walking to Jesus on the surface of the deep. I say deep here because I want to plumb the greater depths of this miracle. Miracles are not, as some people like to describe them, suspensions of the laws of nature, as if God had to obey laws. We invent laws of nature. We observe them. Miracles are extraordinary events. Extraordinary events that have no reasonable or natural explanation that mean something that teach something, that reveal something. These are signs intended to reveal something, signs filled with meaning. The deep, the sea, 
is a personification of death itself, the grave, what swallows you up. The fishermen feared the sea. The superstitious ones even sacrificed to the sea. The sea was filled with all sorts of mysterious creatures, Leviathan, Behemoth, Rahav, the great sea monsters. It was a picture of death that swallowed you up whole and it never spit you out again. You were lost. You were gone. Never to be seen or heard from again. And now you have a slightly deeper meaning behind the story of Jonah. But that's for another time, another place. Just file that away. The deep, death. The deep is what covered the earth in the beginning when the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep and God spoke the creative word and brought order out of the chaos. And so when Jesus walks on the water, he's not only showing his lordship over all creation, he is showing his lordship over death and hell and devil. He's walking on the back of Leviathan, treading that old serpent underfoot. And when Peter does it, he's doing the same thing by the power of Jesus' word, defying death, walking on its back as though it were solid, dry ground. Peter does not do this in the strength of his own buoyancy, but in the power of that one little word from the mouth of the word incarnate come one word carries peter out of the boat across the wind the waves across the sea right up to jesus he made it right up to jesus walking on the water now don't try this at home in your swimming pool much less out in the ocean you have no such word from jesus And anchored by your own puny piety and wishful thinking, you're going to drop like a rock. So do not try this for yourself. You have a different word spoken to you in the deep of your baptism. Justified, forgiven, declared righteous before God. Holy. And that word also does precisely what it says. It's a powerful word. You don't walk on the water, rather you walk in the water of your baptism. You have been drowned in forgiveness. You have been buried with Jesus in his death through baptism. You live in the life of Jesus by virtue, by the power of your baptism. And that is as sure and certain and powerful as the word that propelled Peter out of the boat to Jesus across the choppy sea of Galilee. Oh yeah, it was choppy. Windy too, remember? Three in the morning, fourth watch. Wind and waves. And now we have Peter standing next to Jesus, away from the boat, standing on the water, defying every principle that Archimedes ever figured out in his bathtub. And Peter looks around. That's a mistake. He looks around. He looks around at the white caps, the chop. He senses the wind. And fear creeps in. Fear, doubt. He's just walked across the water. To Jesus. And only now he begins to realize, hey, wait a minute, you can't walk on water. And he starts to sink. You see what happens when you lose bead on the word? You sink. You sink into death itself. You sink into despair and doubt. 
Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. That's where Peter's eyes needed to be, fixed on Jesus. Not looking at the wind, the waves, the boat. Jesus. Nothing but Jesus. And that's the same with you. If you look around at the world, if you look inside yourself, doubts are going to rise, fears will grow, and you will sink like a rock. And that's why you need to hear the word. Not just once in a while, but every Sunday at least, if not more. That's why you need to receive the supper. To get your eyes off of the wind and the waves. To get your eyes off the world. Get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes off all that stuff that distracts you. And back onto Jesus because without him, you are going to drop like a rock in the sea. There are so many ways that it goes wrong. There are so many distractions, so many causes to doubt. When we lose sight of Jesus, and I don't mean this Jesus in my heart thing, or this Jesus in my thoughts thing, or even this Jesus in my prayers thing. I'm talking about Jesus in the preached word, faith comes by hearing, and Jesus in the supper, and Jesus in your baptism, and Jesus in that unique gathering of two or three, not just one with a Bible, two or three gathered in his name. When we lose objective sight of that objective Jesus, we drown in our sin, in our death, in our despair, in our doubt. Now that isn't to say believe in Jesus and you can walk on water. Or believe in Jesus and you can set your mind to do anything that you want, no matter how improbable it might be. This is not about the power of positive thinking. This is not about the power of positive believing. This is about the power of the word. The power of Jesus' word to do what it says against our doubts, our fears, even, yes, our unbelief. If Jesus could make Peter walk on water with nothing but a little word, imagine what he is going to do on the last day when he says to the dead, arise. What do you think will happen? The word of Jesus does what it says. Every dead will rise. And the episode ends with this nice little flourish. Peter looks around at the wind, the waves. He starts to sink, and he prays the one little prayer that faith has. Hosanna. Lord, save me. Hosanna, save me. That's faith's little prayer. I envision Peter as a rather big, bold man. He was the way some like to say a man's man. He was a fisherman. Fishermen were like that, big, strong, bulky. I can't say the same for tax collectors. But, you know, Jesus had all sorts of disciples. But fishermen were not wimps. Fishermen were big, strong men. And this big, strong man cries out, Lord, save me, like a little child about to sink. I remember the one time when I ventured out into waters that I didn't belong in when I was little. And I went, reached for the bottom with my tiptoes, and the bottom wasn't there. And I started to sink. And I knew enough. I hadn't had swimming lessons yet. Parents, get your kids into swimming lessons. I hadn't had swimming lessons yet, but I knew enough to push off the bottom and come up to the top and gulp for some air before I sank again. Those were in the days when I sank in the water. And I remember that big, strong hand of my father ran out, ran out into the lake and boom, grabbed my arm, pulled me up. I knew I was safe then. 
That was Peter. Big, strong, bold man, crying out like a little child, Lord, save me. And Jesus is all that Peter has at that moment. It's all he needs. That's the prayer out of our baptism. That's the prayer out of our baptism when we're drowning. Drowning in our sin, drowning in our death. Lord, save me. And I love it. Immediately, immediately, without hesitation, Jesus reaches out his hand and he grabs hold of Peter. And I want you to freeze that moment in your mind. Peter, with a, he's up to here in the waves and, and his arms out. And, and Jesus grabs his arm. Not his hand, I'm sure, his arm. Whose grip matters at that point? Yeah, my dad's grip. Yeah, Jesus' grip, not yours. Oh, you little faith one, Jesus says. Why did you doubt? Was he smiling? I think he was. Peter, come on, you just walked over to me. Why'd you doubt? (laughs) Why do you doubt? Why do I doubt? I'll tell you why. It's simply this. You and I don't trust the word. That's why. We think we need to add something to it. Our own ingenuity, our own smarts, our own activity, something. It's deep within us. That horrible question, did God really say? Does God really mean? Can God really do? Adam and Eve let it in, and it's been rumbling around in us ever since. Doubt. Did God really say it? Can the word really work? Am I really forgiven? Am I really justified? Am I really holy before God? How can I be sure of it? I have to do something to be sure. I wonder what Peter thought. When they were safely back in the boat. I wonder what Peter, I wonder, you know, I wonder how Peter got back into the boat. Did he walk next to Jesus? With Jesus grabbing onto him? Did Jesus carry him? One thing I'm pretty sure of, they didn't swim. (laughs) Swimming is beneath Jesus' dignity. He walks on the water. And by faith, Peter does too. And by the time they were back in the boat, the wind had died down, the waves were quiet, and the disciples (laughs) disciples were staring at Jesus with these wide eyes. And what else can you do? They worshipped him, and they confessed him. Truly, you are the Son of God. And that he is. No one but the Son, no one but the eternal word can pull this off. The prophets did miracles. They did miracles like healing, even raising the dead. But no one ever walked on the water. And no man with his word ever caused another man to walk on the water. That's the power of the word from the word incarnate. For us today here, he comes to us in the fourth watch of the night. The lonely moment when we are weakest when we are exhausted when we can't pull our oars any longer when the law has had its way with us and we realize we can't do anything not even against the wind and the waves when the depths of death have had their way with us he comes to us and he speaks a sure and powerful word to us that says you are forgiven And you are because he says so. He says you are God's child, beloved. And it's so because he says so. You stand justified before God's judgment throne because he says so. 
And that word that he speaks to you out of your baptism, out of the mouth of your pastor, out of the supper, is as sure and certain as that word that caused Peter to get up out of a boat and walk on the surface of the deep. By the word of Christ, you dance on death and the grave. And you can count on it, my dear friends, because the word from the word always does what it says. Amen. See the difference? (laughs) Again, it's the difference of night and day. And it's also the difference of, of law and gospel. When you turn the story of Peter into something that you've got to get out and start walking on the water, you know, and stuff like that, it becomes really weird, subjective, and undefinable law. But when you preach about Christ, it becomes the clearest gospel and it becomes very comforting and just changes everything. Okay, second sermon is entitled The Faith of Abraham, and it's on the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, which reads, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Amen, amen. Truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Here's Pastor Swirla once again in his sermon entitled, The Faith of Abraham. The word that runs through our three readings this morning and connects them together like a thread is the word faith, trust. Trust in the promise of God. Abraham believed God. He was full of faith, and it was counted to him as righteousness. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him, that is, trusts in him, should not perish but have eternal life. This is bottom line Christianity. This is the core of what you and I believe and confess as Christians. This is what makes Christianity Christian. It's the chewy nougat center without which Christianity becomes simply another religion among religions. This is what sets Christianity apart from all the other world's religions and what many people, even those 
who call themselves Christians don't get. God justifies the ungodly. Not the godly, the ungodly. And it's God who justifies. God counts faith in his promise as righteousness before him. And God grants this as an undeserved and unearned gift, completely apart from any work that you and I do. Abraham is the pattern and the paradigm of this faith. Abraham believed God. He took God at his word, and he trusted him. Of all the people on the face of the earth, God singled out this one man, 75 years old, married, wealthy, childless. A man who shared his empire with his heir, his nephew Lot. God chose Abraham, and he chose him not because he was pious, religious, decent, upstanding, conservative, liberal, or anything at all. In fact, we don't even know what Abraham believed. We don't even know what his religion was. We simply hear here that God called to Abraham. In fact, the scriptures never say why God chose Abraham. He simply came to him and told him to pull up his tent pegs, leave his homeland and his comfortable life, and dwell as a nomad in a land that didn't belong to him. God promised Abraham that he would become a great nation, and that even though he and his wife were childless and he was 75 years old, nevertheless his descendants would be as numerous as the sand uh, on the beach or as the stars in the air. God promised that his descendants would inherit that land of Canaan as a gift from the Lord. God promised that Abraham's name would be great and a blessing to many. And God promised that through his offspring, through his seed, all families of the earth would be blessed. That seed, that offspring, of course, is Christ. And this promise came to Abraham before Abraham did a blessed thing. Abraham didn't say a prayer nor did God offer Abraham any kind of deal. If you do this, then I will do that. He simply told Abraham how it was going to be. And Abraham believed what God told him. He trusted what the Lord had said to him. He believed the promise as crazy and as unlikely as the promise sounded that a 75-year-old childless man would be the father of a great nation and that through his offspring all the people of the earth would be blessed. Abraham was faithful. That is, he was full of faith. A faith that God granted him to trust this promise. And he took God at his word and God counted that trust of Abraham as righteousness before him. This is how the unrighteous stand before a righteous God. Not on the basis of what you do, but on the basis of trust in the promise of what God does. This is how Israel stood as a nation before God, unlike any other nation 
on the face of the earth. It stood on, by faith in the promise of God. And this is how you and I stand before God. It's the only way that we can stand before God. Not on the basis of our works under the law, not on the basis of our commandment keeping, our religion, our piety, or anything else. We stand before God justified solely, solely by God's grace alone, his undeserved, unmerited kindness. It's a gift from him to us. We stand by faith alone. Trust in what God declares by his word, completely apart from anything that we do. The promise that through the offspring of Abraham, who is Jesus the Christ, blessing has come to the world and specifically has come to you. And in this faith, we stand justified on the basis of Jesus Christ alone. His life, his righteousness, his death, his resurrection. You've probably seen it, and if you haven't, just dial in on YouTube. You can find these things. Man on the street surveys. People asking others, what do you think Christianity is and what does Christianity teach? Go ahead and try it yourself. Take a survey of the people close to you and ask them what they think Christianity is all about. And they will likely speak in terms of stuff you do. Or at least stuff you're supposed to do. They'll speak in terms of going to church a lot when you don't feel like it. Having to give offerings instead of keeping all that money for yourself. Obeying commandments that don't make any sense to you. Living according to the Bible's teachings, even though that was then and this is now and we know better. Or being good and decent and moral and upright citizens. It's not uncommon to hear people summarize the Christian faith this way. Live a good life, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and God will forgive the rest and it will all come out okay in the end. And that would turn out to be exactly the opposite of what the Christian faith actually is about. If the promise to Abraham and his offspring had come through the law, then there would be no promise. There would be no Israel. There would be no Savior. There would be no salvation. For it, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void, Paul says. In Galatians, he puts it this way, if it depends on our works, then Christ died for nothing. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. The law brings wrath. That means this, there's no point in us cozying up to the commandments, because in the end they will kill you. The law is death to the sinner, and sinners we all are. And that was true of Father Abraham as well. The condition of sin, the depth of unbelief, the extent of our corruption, these are so deep and so pervasive that simple religious rehab won't work. We cannot be fixed, not with Ten Commandments, not with 40 days of purposing, not with anything that we do. We're unfixable. We're unrehabable. The law, as holy and well-intentioned and good as it is, will only work one thing in us, death. That's how the Apostle Paul described it for himself a few chapters following. In Romans chapter 7, 
He says this, what then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if I had not, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. <laughs> I would have thought it was doing pretty good. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. That's a good one, actually, because all the others are kind of intuitively obvious, like murder and stealing and adultery. You know, we kind of have a sense of that, but coveting, gee, that sounds downright American. And there's two commandments devoted to coveting. Who would have known? But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. That's a little bit like telling a room full of people listening to a sermon, don't yawn. And now, once you start thinking about it, what do you do? You start yawning. Don't covet. You start thinking about it. Coveting breaks out all over the place. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. The law always accuses us. The law always kills us. The law always condemns us. For all the nice things that we can say about the law, that it is holy and righteous and good and just, it's good for morals and it might even build strong bodies 12 ways, it cannot save a sinner from sin and death. It only amplifies and magnifies sin to the point that sin becomes so utterly sinful, even we recognize it, so that we make no mistake that it is only through faith in the promise that we are justified before God. And if we would understand this one point, our churches would become less of the law factories that they seem to be and much more the gospel sounding boards that they are supposed to be. St. Paul says where there is no law, there is no transgression. In other words, sin ends where the law ends. And here's where the law ends. Christ. Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. Paul goes on to say, Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. In other words, sin ends where Christ begins. Christ is the end of the law, and so Christ is the end of sin. With Christ, the reign of sin is ended, and the chains of death are broken. Sin and death always go together, you know. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, and that gift is given through faith, through faith in the promise. A rabbi named Nicodemus came to Jesus one night for a little rabbi-to-rabbi conversation, professional conversation. He had heard great things about Rabbi Jesus, all the miraculous signs he had done, and he concluded that Jesus was a great teacher come from God because no one could do the signs that Jesus did unless God was with him. And you notice that Nicodemus was focused entirely on the doing. Jesus was doing great things. So God must be with him because God only works through people who do great things. That's what Nicodemus' religion was all about. Doing the righteousness of God. And Jesus 
It's almost like he doesn't hear what Nicodemus says. He flips the religious tables on him, and he comes out with a statement like this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, or I like to translate born from above. I'll explain why in a second. Unless one is born, let's have it both ways. Unless one is born again from above, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And I say this because the Greek word anothen can mean again, but it usually means above, from above. It's one of those multi-purpose words that can mean two things at the same time. And I think Jesus means two things at the same time, unless one is born again from above. Now, Nicodemus understands it only in the sense of born again. And he wonders, how can a man enter his mother's womb and be born a second time? That's silly. That's ridiculous. What the heck are you talking about, Jesus? But the birth that Jesus was speaking of was a different kind of birth, a spiritual birth from above, from heaven. Unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. There's your answer. Water and spirit. Creation language. Everything was made of water and spirit by the word in the beginning when the spirit of God hovered over the chaotic waters of the deep that covered the earth. And it is also, not coincidentally, baptismal language. What Jesus is saying is, unless one becomes a new creation, unless one is born again, from above, by the working of the Spirit, through the Word, in the water of baptism. One cannot see the kingdom of God. One cannot enter the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood, born of Adam, and, and corrupted by sin, cannot see, nor can it enter the kingdom of God. Adam wants nothing to do with the kingdom of God. Your old Adam wants nothing to do with the kingdom of God. You, as old Adam, want to be gods in your own kingdom. And so Adam must die and Christ must rise. And of course, all of this puzzles poor Nicodemus. And who can really blame him? (laughs) He's losing his religion sentence by sentence here. He was a teacher of Israel, a respected member of his community. He stood before his congregation every Sabbath and he preached the righteousness of God from the Torah of Moses. And yet, as the Apostle Paul would later write to the Corinthians, it was as though a veil were covering his eyes so that he could read the words of Moses and yet not grasp their meaning. He could quote the Bible, and yet he missed the message entirely. Occupied with works and with doing and with commandment keeping, he missed entirely the central theme and the focus of the Torah. Abraham believed God. Abraham trusted God. And that faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness before God. Not works Faith, trust, faith alone in the promise alone, by God's grace alone. You see, Luther didn't invent this in the Reformation. It was already there in Moses. It was already there with Abraham. By the way, this is the whole point of St. Paul's book, uh, Book of Romans, his letter to the Romans. 
His point is that the Torah is not a Torah of works, but it is a Torah of faith in the promise. And that faith in the promise is credited as righteousness before God. The promise must be believed, trusted, just as Abraham trusted God against everything that he knew and everything that he saw and everything that he experienced, and that trust was credited to him as righteousness. You and I must believe that we have become new creations in Christ, that the old has already gone, that the law with its commandments stand fulfilled, that death has already lost its sting. We must believe this. We must believe that we have been born anew from above in the spirited water of our baptism. We must believe that this Jesus lifted up on the cross in his death, just as Moses lifted up that bronze serpent in the wilderness, that this Jesus is the antidote to the venom of sin, and that looking on him in faith, we will live even though we die. We must believe that God loves the world in this way, that he sent his only begotten son to the world, that whoever believes in him, that is, trusts in the promise of forgiveness, life, and salvation, has what he believes, namely eternal life. We must believe, take God at his word, that God did not send his son to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. But instead, he sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem fallen humanity, to save the world from sin and death by his own dying and rising. And so take God at his word. Stand in the faithful shoes of Father Abraham. Trust in the promise of salvation in Jesus, and it will be counted to you as righteousness. Amen. You can't add anything to that. What'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition. Amen. Yeah, it would be tough to add anything to that. What'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Till next Wednesday. That's right. May God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>